Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs, and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. 
In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. everybody welcome to human monsters and uh, today we have a special episode uh, where we're contributing to a campaign to raise awareness um, for to basically achieve justice for someone who was a victim of a horrific violent crime back in 1974 and I'm speaking today with uh, his brother Eric welcome Eric Carlson to the show hi Morgan Really great to be here and big hello to all your listeners and your viewers. Sure. Thank you. And so uh, I, I just say, you know, before we get into the case and the crime itself, um, I'm interested in knowing about Frank. Uh, so uh, what kind of gent was he? What did he do for a living? What was he like as a human being? Well, he was my older brother. He was nine years older than me. Um, we grew up together, of course. And uh it was a very special relationship because the age distance between the two of us put him in a kind of a unique role as a sibling. Um, he was always looking out for me. He was the babysitter when my folks had to go out. He kind of was this uh, intermediary between, you know, the adult life that my folks led and then, uh, of course, his teenage years and then college and, and, and uh, graduating from, from university and, and going out into the world, getting married. Um, he was my role model. He was my hero. He was my buddy. And, um, I miss him a lot. And, uh, what about the life he was living, uh, right before the crime occurred? Um, I know he was married. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we grew up in San Francisco, lived in the Richmond district. Um, he graduated from San Francisco state university. He had a degree, a degree in journalism with a minor in English. He um, had a job. He was the assistant manager of the Safeway store in San Mateo, but he was writing articles and, and uh, had a series of interviews with Rolling Stone, trying to get hired by Rolling Stone. Uh, he was a big music nut, as everybody who grew up in San Francisco in the 60s was. Um, he and his wife um, were married in 1971. They, they bought their home in 1972. They lived in the Potrero Hill District, which is a kind of a working class neighborhood at the time. It was an older Victorian home, kind of run down. They were putting a lot of love into it, fixing it up, and um, were looking forward to raising a family and, and you know, having a, a life together. And, and then this horrible thing happened um, on the night of April 18th. Speaking of which, and I realize 
you know, having been so close to him, it's a very difficult thing for you to talk about or even think about. Um, but if you could explain, describe uh, that incident, what happened on that date? Yeah, um, the sort of the, you know, the elevator speech. Uh, he and his wife, uh, late one evening, April 18th, um, were at home. Uh, his wife had gone to bed upstairs. It was a two-story home. He was downstairs in the dining room uh, doing some paperwork, um, just sort of catching up on odds and ends. And uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, there was someone outside who climbed in uh, through the back window, accessed by the porch and the, the, the roof in, in the back of the home. Um, he broke into the room where my sister-in-law was sleeping, um, took her prisoner with a knife. She screamed. Frank ran upstairs. He wanted money. They gave him what they had. It wasn't enough. He marched them downstairs. Uh, my brother was tied up, beaten to death in front of my sister-in-law. And then he took my sister-in-law upstairs and for the next not quite four hours, proceeded to rape, abuse, beat, and and uh, attempt to kill her. Um, stole all her jewelry, and on the way out, set the house on fire to cover his tracks. It's regarded still today by law enforcement and people who were there as probably one of the most horrific crimes in the history of the city of San Francisco. And he's been characterized as deranged. Did he have a history of mental illness or was it just a history of criminality? Um, he was a mail carrier. He lived down the block from them. They did not know him, but apparently he had been observing them for an extended period of time. Um, he was um, uh, known in the neighborhood. He he was out prowling around that night. Um, he had relationships with women that unfortunately um, turned him down that evening, making him angry. And um, he broke into their home and, and that's when all the, the madness ensued. Um, we don't know much about him still 50 years later. Um, Psych reports that we'd seen copies of would indicate that he had a, a sociopathic diagnosis. Um, he was a sexual sadist and there were events in his past history, uh, family problems that presented in similar manners, people being abused, but, but certainly no one being beaten to death. And um, so how long did it take for the police to finally uh, catch on that it was him and then and put him in custody? Um, he was apprehended, I would say, within about two weeks. Um, he attempted to pawn jewelry that he had stolen, and um, the police officers had sent out uh, descriptions of the jewelry to all the pawn shops in the city. And um, when some of it popped, the individuals that were um, being offered the jewelry um, worked with the police department to set up a sting. Um, it, it was not him that they captured at that point in time. It was someone that he was selling the stuff to who was trying to fence it and 
of course they traced it back very quickly to to the killer and and then things sort of you know moved on from there and did the case go to trial or did he take a plea deal how did that no it it went to trial and he was convicted of murder in the first degree um multiple counts of rape torture um obviously the burglary the arson um he was sentenced to death plus 54 years for all the ancillary crimes and uh the trial was wrapped up in august of 1974 so um that was the um, initial plan so clearly um he must have filed appeals then because um on top of the death penalty having been abolished or it's been abolished in California, right? Well, it's complicated. It, the, the chain of events is is really convoluted. But just to give you sort of the 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 relevant high points, um, he filed one appeal, which every murder conviction does. The appeal was denied, and then he was placed in San Quentin on death row, and and that was that. But what happened in 1976 is the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional, cruel and unusual punishment by the Supreme Court. And any state that had a death penalty in place, such as California, um, was required to uh, abolish it. Um, They did, but unfortunately, the process required the sentence to be uh reduced to whatever the next worst term was in place and in california in 1976 that was life with parole there was no life without parole so uh he and 69 other individuals including sirhan sirhan and the manson family killers had their sentences changed to life with parole so by 1980, we started having parole hearings and the state realized they'd made a mistake because by 1977, life without parole was back on the books. And it wasn't too much later than that, that the death penalty was reinstituted because there are ways to do that that do not conflict with the Supreme Court ruling. So um Everything was sort of back to the original conditions, but these individuals, the 69 lucky ones, had their cases fall through the cracks. And now with him uh, being eligible for parole, it's been 2049 years since he was sent to prison. Um, what are his prospects of getting out? Or how do, do they look good or for him well this will be the 18th time that we've gone through this exercise so there's always an opportunity um i will say that given the fact that he's been in jail for not quite 50 years he was recently reclassified as a youth offender because california passed new um, administrative changes to incarcerated individuals which redefine youth as anyone under the age of 26 and he was 25 years and 10 months when he committed the crime. Um, He's also 74 years old, and California gives dispensation to inmates who are elderly, meaning anyone over the age of 50. Um, He may or may not have medical conditions. We don't really know because of HIPAA, but that always, you know, sort of comes up in these uh, events. 
Um, I'll say that the climate in California now is certainly uh, open to the idea of incorporating him back into society. And there is a lot of momentum behind releasing inmates, um, which, um, you know, I'd be the first person to agree there's probably way too many people in prison. Um, but I, I'm only worried about this guy, not everybody else. Did you attend his trial? No, I was 16 years old at the time. My parents didn't want me attending. So um, oh, yeah. we had family friends who went and took notes. And um, I have read the trial transcripts. Um, so I, I do know, you know, how it all unfolded. Do you know if he ever uh, committed homicides in prison? No, no. His his prison behavior, as much as we're able to sort of learn, um, has been uh, muted. Um, but he's also been diagnosed as incurable and a sociopath. And um, that's why let him, letting him out is, is, is not a good idea for California at large. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that that diagnosis is going to work against him as he tries to get paroled? Well, I certainly hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So, and speaking of your family, um, were your parents ever really able to, to move on after Frank's death? Well, you know, moving on, that's kind of an interesting term. Um, nobody ever really moves on from an event like this. Sure. What you do is you just find somewhere to put it. Uh, because if you don't find somewhere to put it, it just eats at you and it will destroy you because it is so overwhelmingly sad. And, and um, my entire family and, and even many of my close friends, people were there at the time. Everybody got affected by this. And um, it's it's problematic. Um, I mean, I. I went on to graduate from Stanford and get an MBA and have a great career. And I've got a wonderful wife who loves me more than anything. And, and you know, we travel the world and, you know, you, you try to live life. Um, but unfortunately, the process in the state of California requires you to re-engage. And that's that's probably the worst aspect of this. You, you, you talk about the notion of moving on. Yeah. It's pretty hard when the state is reminding you of it every three years. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, how, how did um, her her family react, Annette's family? Well, they've always been there for her, and, and I'm still very close to my sister-in-law, but but her journey is her journey, and I'm, I'm really not in a position to, to talk about that. I oh, will yeah. say, though, I will say that um, the trauma doesn't go away, and and um, this individual destroyed her life. Oh, no, no doubt. Um, so yes, so she survived. Um, did she, uh, ever remarry? I, I probably shouldn't go there. It's, it's really not okay. like, yeah, but, but, but she's, you know, doing the best she can under the circumstances. And considering this was like the worst kind of incident of its kind in San Francisco's history, did it get a lot of media attention at the time? It did at the time. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. 
I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club, Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Yeah, and what, what is that like when someone you know not only experienced something? Hi, I'm Karina Bemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right. Daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, stay safe. So horrific, but that it's, you know, everyone's talking about it in town. What, what is that like? Um, it's very disorienting. You, you feel like you're in a movie or, or, or a TV show. You, you don't. You don't feel like you're living reality because you become sort of um, detached from it, which I mean, maybe that's a protective mechanism with your psyche. I I don't know. Um, But it's 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 an experience I would never wish on anyone. Sure. Was some of the coverage kind of sensationalist and in poor taste? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, the crime was the crime. And I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in a free press and uh, I wouldn't want anyone to um, sugarcoat this event. Yes, naturally. <clears throat> so what, was, there, was a book ever written about it or anything like that? Um, there was a book written by um, Frank Falzone. Frank Falzone is one of my personal heroes. He is a retired uh, San Francisco homicide detective. Uh, he wrote his autobiography last year. And this case is one of 15 that is included in his book. Um, he's a pretty important guy. He broke a lot of big cases. The Night Stalker, when the Night Stalker came to San Francisco, he cracked the case. Uh, when Dan White killed uh, Mayor Moscone and, and Harvey Milk, um, he was right on that one. He was involved in the People's Temple thing um, and, and a number of other sort of um, notorious events in the city. But um, if you get his book and believe me, it's a great book, uh, he says that, that this case, which was one of the first ones he was ever assigned, was probably the most distressing, the most uh, mem memorable of, of any murder he has ever investigated and the first responders will will tell you the same it was it was hideous beyond words okay. so um in terms of the, the campaign you got going right now do you have an attorney involved with it well what i've done is i've created a website what we do is we try to harness public opinion and the best way to express your opinion is to write a letter to the Department of Corrections. And you can do that either by sending an email or by writing a, a you know, a pen and ink letter. Um, the website justiceforfrank.org has instructions and a link to a pre-populated communication. I think frequently people say, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to say. And we say, we can help you with that. Um, and it's just a, a way to remind the parole board that my brother was an important person who was going to do good things, who was going to help, who was going to make a difference, and um, that, that we victims don't recover from this, you know. Please don't assume because I, I lead a a good life it, it means you know i'm cured right yeah I, I i i have a lot of um you know residual trauma we'll put it that way so is it like a, a thing where something good happens to you but you, then you think if only frank were here it would yeah. be complete yeah. yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah yeah and um so is, is there also a, like a petition that people can sign as well? There's no petitions because they don't take petitions. Um, oh. But yeah, it's, it, I know so much about the Department of Corrections and the parole process. It's I could be a consultant. But um, oh, yeah, yeah. bottom line is um, the parole hearing is it's not a legal proceeding, so you can't attend it. It's extremely limited as to who can participate and, and who can't. And um, having a lawyer isn't necessarily 
to your advantage because you're not trying to convict anybody. They've already been convicted. What you yeah. want to do is you want to keep them behind bars. Um, I will say, though, that my sister-in-law has a lawyer representing her because the trauma of appearing potentially in front of the person that did this to her is is beyond her ability to cope. Sure. Um, so, so she is represented by legal counsel who 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 reads her statement on her behalf. Are, are you able to attend or do you? Want oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I attend. And in fact, on my website, if people want to click on the link, there's a video of the 2020 statement that I gave. And that that hearing happens on the 25th of April at 830 a.m. Yes. Uh, for anybody who's uh, interested in, in knowing how it all turns out. Now, I know that a lot of inmates, when they have a parole hearing coming up, suddenly they're very apologetic and saying, oh, I know my actions hurt the people who are involved. And right. Blah, blah. Has he done that yet? No. No. Well, that's no. interesting, too. That's that's definitely notable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would I, agree with you. Yeah. I mean, if he hasn't made any apologies up to now, I don't see how he, he would be remorseful about it. He's a sociopath. Yeah. And I, mean, and I will simply I, I will simply say that that dealing with him over the last 50 years, first my parents and now me, um, he's a truly evil person. Yeah, I mean, some people will say, you know, we still want an apology, but, I, you know, if it's not sincere, how how much value is there in the, the apology? You know, I, I would concur with that, but I would also say. I don't really know how I would feel until I actually got one. And that has yet to happen. Yeah, I mean, if if he were paroled, um, what what kind of action would you take? Would you is, or, or is there anything you could do? Well, the process is complicated. Um, I will stay, say say for the benefit of the of the viewers that um, when when convicted murderers are given parole, um the cases are still reviewed by the governor if you were paying attention that recently happened with sirhan sirhan and gavin newsom stepped in and said no i don't think so and um we'll see if that happens this time i'm i'm hoping that the parole board makes the decision to keep him incarcerated and they have the latitude to extend his stay for as much as 15 years, which was the intent of Marcy's law, which was passed in 2008. Um, they don't usually go there because it's complicated. Um, but we're, we're hoping for the best possible outcome. Well, I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't be he's evil, but he's not stupid enough to approach Annette. I wouldn't imagine if he did get paroled. Um, but I would imagine, you know, the stress for her just knowing if he was on the streets again. That's right. Would be overwhelming. I mean, that's certainly yes. a point that at least her attorney should bring up at the parole hearing. I don't know if she's had like nightmares about it or what, but uh, her life has not been easy. And oh, no. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's Anybody something that remains with her. Yes. Oh, yeah. Anybody who's experienced trauma, it's like their brain's on a loop. It just keeps bringing back those memories over and over. Right. And it, it wouldn't matter if it happened 50 years ago. It, it'll That's still right. happen. Yeah. 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 
Um, so is this, uh, yeah, so you've had to live with this for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so as this parole hearing is coming up, is, is publicity starting up again? I'm certainly doing my best to make people aware. Um, I had a column printed in Newsweek this week, the My Turn article. Um, and I have contacted a number of reporters who are thinking about doing something. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, well, you know, true crime is so big right now. So it would cert- if they did decide to write articles about it, it would dovetail with that trend for sure. Well, it's fascinating, though, because I've approached some reputable brand name publications who basically said, yeah, we're not interested. Hmm. Why? Because it happened so long ago? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this topic is just too problematic. The horror is too intense for their readers or or maybe they don't like the narrative. Well, yeah. And I think another issue, too, is that, you know, just from by dint of me having produced a true crime podcast for years is that when cases like this affect minors or they affect women, uh, women alone, Mm -hmm. as opposed to this case, that they tend to get more attention as well. That tends to Mm. shock people more. But if it's a man who is murdered, that does seem to attract less attention, Mm. which is unfortunate, but uh, that is, that is the case. And uh, I can't imagine what kind of life this this guy would have if he were paroled, I mean, to carry around that baggage with him anyway. Well, he is a sociopath, so I don't think his conscience would be affected. But on the other hand, uh, I don't know if his living circumstances outside of the incarcerated environment would be uh, less challenging for him. I, I think the world's changed a lot in the last 50 years. And I think he would be um, ill-equipped. And how successful has your your website been so far? Like how many hits? Extremely, extremely. We're we're really happy with the turnout. Um, we're generating a ton of of public outrage. And again, for your for your viewers or your listeners, justiceforfrank.org. Click on the link. Click on the uh, connection to to send an email. It's really easy. We've made it plug and play, and and we would be incredibly uh, indebted to anybody that um, steps up to help us. Yeah, what what's the name of the offender again? First name Angelo, last name Pavajo, P A V A G E A U. Yeah, he's a nasty piece of work. So pay attention to what's happening with him as well. You don't want him back in the streets if you happen to live in uh, California. I don't know if he would be released to San Francisco. He, he, he would. That, that's the requirement by law. Um, when people are released, they are released back to the location where the crime occurred. I don't know if that's such a good idea. That's it's, it's kind of an odd law, isn't it? Um, they've got to have a rule one, one way or the other. Um, the inmate can petition at that point depending on their um, – adjustment to that initial status to go somewhere else um, but they can't do it right away and when you've had this kind of experience um which is hard to as i said hard to talk about hard to think about 
Mm. And yet whenever you meet new people and become mm-hmm. close to them, mm. uh, ultimately it's a huge part of, of your life. And right. You is it, is it, what, what's that like when you got to introduce that to someone? Well, it's fascinating. I think, you know, if I detach myself from the horror of the story, um, it's an interesting study in, in, you know, interpersonal dynamics. Um, you know, you make friends wherever you go, and at some point you share. You share about your family circumstances. People bring up, you know, sad things, people passing away, illnesses, car crashes. You know, stuff happens, right? I mean, I've got two best friends. One's got a, had a stroke last couple of years ago, and somebody else has got, you know, Parkinson's. And, and you know, life is, you know, it's, it's impartial. It, it just hands things out to you. Um, people can be incredibly graceful and kind and supportive and just overwhelmingly, um, sympathetic. And then you get people that just, it creeps them out and then you never hear from them again. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that's strange that they would almost see you as being, having been tainted by the experience. Oh, absolutely. And and I get that. I understand that because I, I, I try to put myself in the other person's place and think, wow, what if that was me? And then I was meeting somebody like me and I heard that story. I mean, I know how my folks raised me and I know how I think I would react. But I also understand that it's it's it, 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 it's a horrible, horrible tale. And yeah. um, if you don't want to be around somebody that's going to tell you about something like that, then you probably just need to disengage. Yeah, I guess they're the same kind of people who would not visit someone in the hospital because they can't handle yeah. any situation that's yeah. grim, you know. Right. That's, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody's wired a different way. And I I, I don't want to judge anybody because it's, it's pointless, right? Yeah. But at the same time, when you're experiencing it firsthand, you scratch your head and you go, wow, there's another crime this guy committed. It's it's not on the books. Yeah. He's not really going to get punished for it. But but it's a thing. And I'm, one, I'm and I'm wondering, too, you know, when you got the news, I yeah. can't help but think there must have been a quality of unreality or surrealism about it. In this oh, sense absolutely. Yeah. No one no one ever thinks it's going to happen to them, that they could lose someone in such a grisly fashion. You're absolutely correct. Uh, I, I was 16 years old and I realized. That my life was going to change in ways I couldn't even understand or appreciate. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And and so, and the effect on just the whole family too, Yeah, uh, must've been really hard in the sense that like, seeing your parents react to it, that must've felt oh, yeah. very un, unnerving in the sense like, your yeah. parents are your rock, but they just right. lost someone who met, right. means as much to them as one's own child. So that must've oh, been yeah. You, you've accurately sized it up. And then, you know, my mom and my dad were, were incredible people and they didn't want me getting hurt by this any more than I'd already been hurt. And that meant for probably the first 30 plus years of this, um, they kept me at a distance from it. You know, when the hearings would come up, I, I would go, I wouldn't participate in them. I'd, I'd sit in the, you know, the holding tank. Um, and, you know, when my folks passed, I, I promised them both that I would take over and I would run this thing. And, and now after having, you know, been in charge for, you know, the last 
13 years or so, I, I can appreciate what it must have taken out of them because it's not easy. Was the it a... Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, I was just saying that the system is cruel. Yeah, absolutely. Was it they who broke the news to you? No, no. I was getting ready for school that morning, and uh, my mom, my, my dad had gone to work already, but my mom was getting ready to go on, on Friday. She was a volunteer at the hospital, and um, I heard this scream from uh, their bedroom, and I, I didn't even know what I ran in, and she had the radio on while she was getting ready and she heard it on the radio. Oh my God. Yeah. It's the worst and, way. That's worse yeah. to hear it secondhand rather than someone contacting you personally, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, that's just sort of the dynamics of the situation and the time because, you know, back in the seventies, um, overnight crimes like that, the, the reporters would just have the police scanner on and listen to it. And if they picked up on something interesting, they'd head out and, you know, get a film crew. And um, that's what happened in this case. And so in terms of how it affected your life from that point onwards, you were still in high school. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that uh, your your alumni must have found out about it. So oh, yeah. how, how did they treat you after that? Well, many of them are still my friends to this day. And they remember it, in some cases, maybe even better than I did. And uh They've been kind and supportive and, and, and considerate for, you know, all these years. And uh, it's 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 very meaningful. You know, you go to your high school reunion, you schmooze with people, you catch up. But um, we also have a very profound conversation about this event and how their support is is so important to me. Do you ever uh, get tired of talking about it? Um. Yes and no. I mean, if it means I'm exposing the story to somebody and, and there is uh, the, the knowledge that they'll stand by me going forward, I'll tell the story all day long. And so should this guy not make parole, um, will that mean that you're going to rest easy? You're, it's going to bring you a lot of inner peace? No, not at all. I'm going to go and sit in Gavin Newsom's, you know, waiting room and see how he wants to deal with it <laughs> yeah i know well because well i mean does that mean he's going to still be eligible in the future i guess that would be right well if 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 gavin newsom determines that he is not eligible then they will have to impose a sentence extension and that would be up to the larger board i'm i'm not even going there yet it's, it's it's not necessary right now. Yeah, I can see that. And um, so he never had any other victims, right? It was just those Not two. to our knowledge. Um, I think he's pretty evil, though. You, you, you never know what you would find if you if you dug hard enough. Yeah, it seems like envy must have been at the core of his pathology at the time. Um, seeing the life that Frank had and wishing it but obviously he didn't have that because he was yeah i guess a creep you know i I think there is some truth to that i i I, because i know i mean i used to go up to their house and hang out i i I know how they live they you know they loved each other and, and they were fixing up their cute little house and and they were friendly and they you know 
of course that would rub somebody the wrong way if they themselves saw their own situation in life as not up to their expectations. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's not healthy to compare yourself to others, but I also feel like that's a big part of human nature, isn't it? Well, and sociopaths do it all day yeah. long. I mean, yeah, it sounds like they had a very happy life up until that day. They did. Yeah. They did. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the show, Eric, and uh, I'm going to put the link up again for your website. Thank you. And everybody, please, uh, please uh, send an email or send snail mail. And we've got to keep this guy behind bars. Uh, his name again is Angelo Pavajo. I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. He has a parole hearing on April 25th at 8.30 a.m. after 50 years of incarceration. But he has shown no remorse. Uh, he has not apologized or even acknowledged so much that this that his actions were evil and inappropriate, criminal. Um, so, yeah, he doesn't deserve to be released. Thank you so much for the time and, and the opportunity to speak with you and, and with your audience. It, it really means a lot. Oh, it means a lot to, to me, too. Thank you very much, Eric. Have yourself a good evening. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.